0: Well, good morning, everyone. You all said good morning to them, but (laughs) I guess, thank you. I've struggled quite a lot this week to know what to share on, um, not from a lack of things to talk about, but having a hard time knowing which thing I was supposed to talk about. You can open your Bibles to the book of James. James is a book about faith. And we're going to, over the next while, have a number of messages from this book Some of the things I want from our study of this book is for us to see the beauty of faith. I want us to see the richness of faith, and I want us to cultivate in ourselves a greater awareness of the object of our faith. The book of James is about authentic or true faith as opposed to artificial or fake faith. And a question I found myself wrestling with as I've studied through this book recently is, do I have true faith? Because I don't want a surface-level version of faith. I don't want simply a cultural version of faith. I also don't want an add-on version of faith. Where it's just one more thing in my life. I want it to be at the core of who I am and how I live. A phrase I ran across a while back was, Allured by the beauty of true faith. And I had to wonder, first of all, do I even see faith as beautiful? Do I see beauty in faith? And then secondly, is there an allure, is there an attraction there? Do I see faith as something beautiful, or simply functional? This book of James will show us both the beauty and the functionality of faith. Today we'll be reading the first 12 verses of the book, and I want us to especially see the beauty of faith in the midst of of trials. That's the title I have on my notes today, is Beautiful Faith in Trials. So, we're going to read the first 12 verses of James 1 and look at the beauty of faith in the middle of the hardest and and even the darkest moments of life. James 1, verse 1, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So since we're starting a study of this book, let's get some context for the book of James. The author is clearly James. We don't know for sure which James this is. Most people believe it is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who was a leader, um, some would say the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem. You can see some of that in Acts 15 and Acts 21. And in Acts 8, when Stephen became the first Christian martyr in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem was scattered into all different parts of Judea, Samaria, beyond, and James writes this letter to the 12 tribes. So we have the symbolism of the picture of God's people in the Old Testament, and we have some application here to the New Testament as the church was dispersed from Jerusalem, scattered as uh, refugees away from their homes because of the persecution they were facing. And that context helps us understand why the first words Uh, out of the gate to these people who have been scattered as refugees is James saying, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. And it's interesting, you look at the verses we just read, um, verse 2 and verse 12, serve as sort of bookends to the passage. Um, Trials are mentioned here, and uh, verse 12, bless You have the blessing on the man who remains steadfast under trial. This passage clearly has something to teach us about how to walk through trials. And this was especially, um, I think, easy for, well, easy is not the word I want. Um, It made sense. It was very applicable to those men and women who had been dispersed from Jerusalem. But it's applicable to men and women in all times and in all places. Many, if not most, of these recipients getting this letter um, then were were scattered from their homes. They were uprooted. Uh, They were refugees. They were poor, even, because they were Christians. Many of them would have lost occupation uh, because of their faith. History would indicate them being taken to court by those who opposed them. They were being oppressed, all because they were following Jesus. But James, I find it interesting, doesn't just say, rejoice in persecution. He says, various trials, there in verse 2. And that's a, a big tent with a lot of room under it. I had to wonder, what trials did we all bring into this gathering this morning? a lot of people here, and I imagine we represent, if there's 113 people here, um, we have more than 113 trials represented, I would guess. We all are facing struggles. We are all facing things that are wearing us down that are um, simply not what we would want and not what we would uh, see as beneficial to us. This letter from God through James um, has touched a lot of people. A lot of people have read it. How many trials were represented in the readership of the book of James through the ages? That's the various trials James is talking about. What are we to do with this command from God in James when he says, Count it all joy. So it looks like there's around 59 commands in this book. A book of only five chapters. And this book is starting with a command to count it all joy. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. So, that's the command. Is this fantasy? That can sound impossible. When you think of the trials in your life, it may even come across as cold or offensive count it all joy in the middle of this but it's not let's consider how this command starting in verse 2 of James 1 can be a uh, a powerful picture of the kindness of God and the goodness of God and God loving us and working i want us to see and know that it is possible that it is supernaturally possible to have joy, real, true joy, when we meet trials of all kinds. And when that's true, when we can have that joy, when we find that joy, that trials can reveal a beauty in faith. I noticed the lyrics of the one song, if I had never had a problem I'd never know he could solve them." Well, what does it mean? What, all right, if we want a, f- a kind of faith that is able to turn trials into joy, what does that even mean? And I want to start by understanding what that does not mean. It does not mean that you meet trials of various kinds by simply putting a smile on your face and pretending everything is amazing based on all of the Bible, James 1-2 does not mean that when the trials of life come crashing down on a fellow Christian, your first words to them should be, pure joy, brother. Nothing but joy, sister. Um, I think about when, when Jesus was approached by Martha and Mary after their brother Lazarus had died. And even though he knew God had an amazing and good plan, and that those tears of grief were going to be turned to tears of joy very, very soon. He didn't just roll in and say, it's all joy, everybody. Stop crying. He wept. In 2 Corinthians 1, we have this. 2 Corinthians 1, I want to read. Verses 3 and 4 and 8 through 11. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble, with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. I won't read 8 through 11, but there Paul makes sure to, to share the struggles and trials that they were going through in their ministry work, um, he was very obviously not just saying, trials are all joy, get over it, move on. He was showing that in the depths of trials, there are answers, there is a solution. God brings comfort, and we are also part of how he brings comfort to our suffering brothers and sisters. And no, that doesn't mean just rolling in and Announcing they need to be joyful and to knock off their uh, struggling with their trials. So if the Bible exhorts us to comfort one another, to weep with one another, to bear each other's burdens, and then as we do these things, James says, count it joy, my mind went to why. And he tells us why. There in verse 3, he says, for you know... Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. In order to to experience joy in trials, there's something you need to know about the testing of your faith. Trials are tests of our faith. We say that we believe God is good and God is great and God is worthy of all of our trust. And that's really easy to say when um, work is going well everyone's healthy, the vehicles all start when you turn the key. You know, that that's great. God is great. God is good. He's merciful. He's wonderful. He's supplying my needs. But then when you go out that one morning and the truck doesn't start. Well, where's the goodness of God in that? And very quickly we we shift. Trials are a test of our faith. What about when life is not going well and the tests start? And the Bible says you can count trials joy because you know that even these tests of your faith are producing something. So I don't think we have uh, instruction here from James that the joy is in the specifics of the trial itself. Rejoice that your truck didn't start. Rejoice that uh, your company downsized and you lost your job. But our joy is found in knowing what the trials produce. Steadfastness, endurance, perseverance. Later in verse 12, we have blessed again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial when he has stood the test. So we have those bookends for the passage. When we do go through tests in our faith, we hold on to faith. And there's an otherworldly endurance that develops. Now, to be clear, there's an adversary in this world who does not want your faith to endure through trials. There's an adversary who would use trials in this world to destroy your faith. And amidst all the trials you're bringing into this gathering right now, he's aiming to use those trials to... To tear down your faith. He wants to use hard days to lead you to lose hope, to lead you to go, to let go of your faith, to leave God behind. Or, or maybe he just is happy to get a little bit of you loosening some of your grasp on God when you face those trials in life. And if I let that adversary have a foothold in my faith in the middle of trial, he takes me to dark places. There is no benefit in me letting go of God and giving in to the adversary in the middle of a trial, and yet that is where my mind and my heart can so easily go. But if I hold fast, trials will produce an enduring faith that is beautiful and is beyond explanation. Over in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is also writing to suffering, persecuted Christians, and he says this in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So notice that language there. In this you rejoice, count it all joy, even as you're grieved by various trials. When you meet these trials of of different types, all sorts of kinds of trials, as the genuineness of your faith is tested. And this testing, when you hold on to faith, when you don't give in to the adversary, this kind of testing, these trials will produce a faith that is more precious than gold. There's a beauty here. There is a worth and a beauty to a kind of faith that holds on when it's tested through trials. It becomes more precious than gold. Earlier I mentioned faith having both beauty and function. It, it both is attractive and accomplishes things. And, and I think about this in this gold. In, in our day and in the days when this was first read by those believers scattered by persecution, gold was beautiful. It was used a lot for adorning but also valuable. It was currency. In our day, we would see both valuable, being able to trade it as currency, and also we know a lot of its value in its in its properties. It's um, it has a lot of value in how it can be used. But it's still used as adornment. Walk into any mall, past any um, jewelry store, and you're going to see a lot of gold there as as beautiful adornment being offered. So how do trials produce this kind of faith and this kind of joy in our life that is, that is beautiful and functional? Back here in James, number one, trials lead us to grow in the likeness of God. Trials lead us to grow in the likeness of God. And in fact, this is not just the first purpose of trials in the passage. It's really the ultimate purpose of our entire lives according to Scripture, not just the book of James, that we're seeking to grow in the knowledge and likeness of God. That is the core goal of our entire lives. To grow in the knowledge and likeness of God. This testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance, but that's that's not where it ends. Let's let steadfastness uh, have its full effect is um, is really what we're what we're seeing here in this passage. So what's the effect of steadfast faith? You will be perfect and complete, verse four, lacking nothing. So if we if we zoom out for a little bit and consider the whole Bible and the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis one, man and woman are created in the image and likeness of God. And man and woman have a perfect relationship with God. They lack nothing. The problem shows up in just three chapters, though. Man and woman decide not to trust God anymore, and they sin against God, and the image or the likeness of God is is marred in them, and their relationship with God is broken. And whereas they used to not lack any good thing, they now lack many things. And this is not just where sin entered the world, but suffering, and eventually death, and and trials of every kind. They all come back there. We can look all the way back to Genesis 3 and and see the start of this. Were there trials before sin? There was work. We know that there was work in the garden before the fall, but we have no indication that there were trials. There were struggles. Now there are trials in a world... For every man, every woman. And this is where we come into the story. Every one of us sins against God. The image or likeness of God is marred in every one of us. Every one of us had a relationship with God that was broken. We lack many things. And even now we experience various trials that are inevitable in in this fallen and broken world. We can praise God both that the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3 with sin, but it starts with holiness and, and beautiful relationship with God and, and an unmarred creation. We can very easily start our Bibles at Genesis 3, and that's not where God started. He started with beauty and wholeness and perfectness, perfection. He, he started there. And we can praise God that, that that's where it starts. And we can praise God that the Bible didn't end in Genesis 3 with sin and cursing and blight and pain and broken relationships. We know the story of redemption. We're living in the story of redemption with Jesus, God himself, who came and lived successfully. He, we, we heard a lot about the blood this morning he died sinless that perfect sacrifice we read that he's the captain of our salvation the author and finisher of our faith that's where the story is and then in all of that we have this goal to be restored to God in his likeness i'm going to read a number of verses you don't have to turn to them psalm 17:15 as for me i will see your face in righteousness i shall be satisfied when i awake in your likeness that's when i'll be satisfied not when my bank account crosses this threshold, or when my mortgage is paid off, or when my children are all grown up and married and have successful families. That is not when I am satisfied. I don't know when David wrote Psalm 17, so I don't know where he was in his kingly progression. It would have been very easy to say, when I have conquered all of the enemies of my Lord, then will I be satisfied. When all the nations of the earth know that God is king over all, then will I be satisfied. No, he said, I shall be satisfied when I awaken your likeness. Is that my goal in life? 1 Corinthians 15 the first man was of the earth made of dust the second man is the lord from heaven as was the man of dust so also are those things who are made of dust and as is the heavenly man so also are those who are heavenly and as we have been have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man colossians 3 uh, verses 9 and 10 you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. There are a lot of these verses. Verse, uh, I'll read one more here, Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we see it. God is working all things, including our trials. He's working them for good. Uh, We didn't read that verse in Romans 8. For his purpose. And he would have us be conformed into his image, and ultimately he be glorified in us. This is the daily Christian life. uh, 2 Corinthians 3. We all with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror... Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Is that really the goal of my life? Do I understand that the core of who I am is is built around growing in the knowledge and likeness of God? Last one. 1 John 3 um, verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We're going to be with God, we're going to see God, and we will be perfectly transformed in his image, the way we're made to be, lacking in nothing. But in the here and now, the ultimate goal of our lives is to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing in the way that that James describes it here. And James is saying, if trials are leading us to this goal, being perfectly lacking in nothing, then you can count them as joy, because this goal is really good. It's the greatest goal. Here's a challenge, even for us as Christians, we forget that this is the ultimate goal of our lives. Closeness to God and likeness to God. And if we're not careful, we can start to live just like everyone else in the world where the goal of our lives is to be successful in the world, to be comfortable in the world, to be liked by others in this world. We want to be smart, talented. We want a nice job, a nice family that looks a certain way with children who act a certain way if we're the parents, or parents who act a certain way if we're the children. And, And when we're not careful, our goals become focused on experiencing this or that in this life, whatever that may be. And when that's the case, when trials come, we will never count them joy. Because they're what's keeping us from our goals. Which means if we're going to be able to count our trials as joy, we have to reorient our lives around that altogether different goal. Trials are only joy when God is our ultimate goal. If our goal is ease or comfort or success or certain circumstances in our lives or in our families or in our school or in our work, then we we will not, we cannot experience joy in trials. Instead, we'll experience anxiety, worry, fear, frustration, depression, despair, instability, insecurity. As long as our goal is getting our circumstances the way we want them, then we will go up and down throughout our lives, in those waves of the trials of this world. But if your ultimate goal is not to fix your circumstances, but your ultimate goal is to know and grow closer to God, then you can rejoice, because no matter what your circumstances are, you will achieve your goal. You'll always be secure. You'll have the strength, no matter how weak you get, You can have that supernatural peace that that passes understanding. You can have that hope that conquers all despair. You can have that love that casts out fear. Why? Because you will have God himself more and more every day. And in him you lack no good thing. And that, that's a good goal. God is a good goal. The trials can be joy when God is your goal. We can see plainly in James one three that it requires a radically God centered perspective of life. And that's totally different than the perspective of the of of life that the world around us has. And this text doesn't describe all the specifics of how trials lead us to become more close to God and the likeness of God. And we can often wonder, God, why? This trial doesn't seem to make any sense. How how in any way is this trial producing anything good? And we don't always know the answer to that question. Well, why this or why that? But we do know that in trials, faith will produce steadfastness, perseverance, growth. In faith, we will experience growth in godliness and trials like, like we could never experience any other way. And so we trust God. We can say, if that's where this is going, then I'm going to trust you to lead me there. Superficial or cultural Christianity doesn't get there. But that kind of picture of trust leads us We don't really have time, but there's so much in this passage we could consider about the wisdom of God. That kind of trust and faith that God is working for my growth in any negative circumstance that comes into my life. We can then start to see the wisdom of God that that James talks about in this passage. It says we're going to be lacking nothing in verse 4. And then in verse 5... He talks about, well, but if you lack wisdom, God's got it. He's the source of all wisdom. Let him ask. He gives generously. The God who sees all things, the God who knows all things, and the God who's working, he's the one we come to when we lack wisdom. If it weren't for trials in my life, would I even recognize that God is the source of wisdom and not me? What else would bring me to the end of my own knowledge and attempts to solve life on my own? Would I ever see God and his wisdom were it not for those valleys, were it not for those dark times, were it not for that situation that comes along and I see no way through it or around it or under it or over it? We're told if we lack wisdom, ask in faith, he gives generously, liberally, He's got storehouses of it. Just ask. Just trust. Don't doubt. We have the whole passage here about doubting and being tossed around. If I, if I attach my confidence in anything other than God, I'm going to get knocked around. There's no way around it. We could look through verses 9 through 11 and, and how, in the context of this, um, James James helps them see that riches and, and things in this life are not going to be helpful. And I wonder, for those people who were there in Jerusalem and scattered, what all did they leave behind? What all did they lose? How many of them struggled to get work? How many of them struggled to have daily bread to feed their families when they scattered out of Jerusalem from that persecution? And were they tempted like the children of Israel to look back and say, well, at least back there, amidst all that, we had good stuff to eat. How how hard would it have been for them not to think, well, but if if I just had a solid job here, then I could keep going. If I just had a little more um, meal and oil there for tomorrow, I could sleep a little better tonight. And James makes it pretty clear that the things of this world, the riches of this world, they're fading. They're temporary. They're not the answer. And in verse 12, we have that blessed is the man. And I think back to the Beatitudes and Jesus there on the mount giving those. And here we have blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised for those who love him. Now, when you hear this, we have talked about trials, standing the test, and we see he will receive the crown. And and we when we hear that word crown, we think of um, King Charles and you know the fancy pictures and all the gems and all of that. That that's not the picture that would have come to mind for for at least the first people who who read this book. The the original readers of this letter would have heard this word and, and immediately thought about That crown, uh, that that wreath crown, that would have been the the reward at at any sort of athletic event. You know, their their races and their, you know, the precursor to the Olympics, all that kind of stuff. That where they went and did their um, their races, the the winners were crowned with with like a a wreath-like crown. That was uh, it'd be more for me, I think it, it would settle more, in my mind, if I would think of, you know, you've know, you seen the pictures of the uh, Olympic uh, medal ceremonies, and here's the, the top three standing on their podium, and, and the, the beautiful ribbon with the big medal is hung around their neck. That is the picture that they would have got. They got there. That is the picture they would have seen when he said, when you get through this, when you get to the end of this, not, all oh, you get this beautiful, shiny thing to put on your head, but. Here's here's the acknowledgement. You've run the race, you've come through it, you have won, you are finished. The crown of life. In the end, for all who love him, you can rejoice in trials because you know what's coming through this race. You know that God is there. You know that growing in his likeness really is the most important thing in your life. And you know what's at the end of it. You know that at the end of this race is rest. And and, and no more trials. And being face to face with God. You know that these trials will not have the last word in your life. You can rejoice in trials because you know as you hold fast in your faith in the race, one day you're going to stand before God Himself. And each step of that race between now and then, you know that if you stand steadfast in faith, that next step you're going to be a little more like Him, and a little more like Him, and a little more like Him. When you face the trials of this world, hold fast. Because the God who loves you will lead you through these trials to grow in his likeness, will lead you through these trials to keep your trust in his wisdom, and he will lead you through these trials to full and unending joy. God bless you. Thank you for your time. Can we have a song, please?